Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome back, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. Today, I wanted to spend an episode and go over some vaccine facts. I thought this was a huge one because we don't look at facts a whole lot in politics or political debates. But when it comes to vaccines, the facts are absolutely important, especially because so many get thrown around from both sides. Whether it's the anti-vax movement or it's the pro-vax movement, if you will, there's a lot of things that get thrown around that can be kind of confusing, make people think different things, and be very uh, like scary, really, when you look at it. So I want to start out with a few right off the bat that kind of, well, debunk the anti-vax stuff, if you will. A lot of what started this debate started with Andrew Wakefield in 1998, as Melissa Worthy-Arnold referred to in our previous episode, which if you haven't listened to, please go back and look at. She did a really good job of kind of defending the, the vaccination side of this. But that study linked MMR to autism, and it was later discovered that Andrew Wakefield was paid over 400,000 pounds by lawyers, which he did not report at the time, kind of creating a huge conflict of interest, right? The Royal Free Hospital was also given £55,000 for that study. And the thing about that study was it was only done with, at least from what I read, it was only done with 12 children, all of which had autism. It was kind of like looking back to see what caused it. So it was a retrospective, not a great study. It was basically a couple of case reports, again, not a good study. And it was in no way blinded given the money that was put in there. So if you could ever have a worse design study, I don't think I've heard of it. That just kind of helps clarify some of the Andrew Wakefield stuff there. Also with that, look at the way it's studied again. It's just a huge problem. And even the Lancet went back to pull the article and say, hey, you know, like, we feel this isn't up to our standards and totally discredited it. Part of his other later ideas were that that virus in the vaccine was causing inflammation in the gut of kids, leading to abnormal brain development. Here's the other thing. Andrew Wakefield was not an immunologist or any sort of, especially in the immunology field. He was actually a gastroenterologist or enterologist. And so that's a huge difference in what your specialty is. So I hate to say this to somebody who's at least decently educated, but he kind of needed to stay in his lane on this one because he's talking about autism and spectrum disorders. He's also talking about immunology and he's a gastroenterologist. I know he's got a medical doctor degree, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's the best person to do this type of study, especially when you look at how poorly it was designed. Since then, uh, he's actually been barred from practicing medicine. So that's obviously how far this goes is that he was banned from practicing medicine in England. He's tried to lead a uh, field or a study group here in the United States to start the anti-vax movement. And it looks like recently from what I saw, he wasn't as active. But again, he, since he was disbarred, he kind of got discredited, kind of go ahead, tuck his tail between his legs and walk away in shame. So anyone looks at something like this, this really shows that we should ensure the funds are properly disclosed with all studies. I think that's huge. That's probably a big call out for a lot of pharmacy-based studies in general. I know there's so, several over the years that have been called out for that. But anyway, it's just a big call out for how we should really cite the uh, where money's coming from and who's sponsoring it. And then make sure that there's an intermediary or some sort of step to, so the people who are doing the research won't get their funds cut off in case they produce some results that the people who are funding it don't want them to necessarily publish. That's a huge thing I feel like is we need to make sure that we kind of take clear up some of the money in these studies. And that's the one thing that anti-vax movers love to claim is, well, the drug companies fund this. And, you know, that's, they're the ones who make the money, of course, the ones who are going to study it. We just need a little bit more clear eye into exactly what's causing that. A little bit more light shed on exactly what's going on in that field. I feel that that is a huge thing that could, one, help the pharmaceutical industry get a little more credibility, whether it be a government group that kind of collects the money and then helps distribute it out even though I feel like that just adds more layers of bureaucracy. But there needs to be something done to help kind of clear up some of the money into these studies. And then that way we don't have the Andrew Wakefields of the world who are trying to prove something and then obviously having a bad study like the MMR vaccine is linked to autism. Another funny thing that has kind of been uh, shown over the time is there's been some groups that have out there as the anti-vax groups. In fact, there's been a few of them who have funded studies to try and prove that MMR causes specifically autism or spectrum disorders. And every time they've done a study that's actually been, well, basically worth a damn, they've been proven wrong. Most of the time, they actually prove that it does not lead to autism and the vaccines are safe. So with that, kind of a few things knocked out of the way right there at the beginning. So here's some facts about vaccines. Vaccines are safe. There's some people you don't want to give them to. People have immune disorders. You don't want to give them live vaccines and things of that nature. But that's more of a common sense thing. And it kind of makes sense. You don't want to give somebody who has a weak immune system a live vaccine because there's a chance they could catch something from it. I, that's something that we screen for when we give vaccines. I, working in a pharmacy that has an HIV specialty component to it, have to screen all my patients for stuff like that. 
not that I work with a ton of HIV patients, but we do get them who trickle in and we want to make sure that they're protected adequately and that we're not going to do any harm to them, obviously. Which, speaking of harm, I do want to mention that some vaccines do actually still have thimerosal in them, which is what was in the MMR vaccine that caused the whole scare with autism because thimerosal has a mercury component to it. I kind of want to sit, take a minute here and kind of point out what the difference is. Most pharmacies now use single-use or single-dose syringes, so there's not as much preservative or there's preserv they're preservative-free. Therefore, no chance of thimerosal or any of these other issues even arising. That said, some institutions or some places that get them in bulk or do use multi-dose vials, some of those do still have thimerosal in them. Thimerosal does have mercury, but it is broken down into ethyl mercury, which is totally safe in low amounts and is cleared out of the body pretty quickly and has a pretty low overall exposure risk to the actual mercury in it. So yes, some of these multi-dose ones do have a mercury component, but your body can metabolize it out. There's a list of things actually in the, in the world today that have mercury in them. Your fluorescent light bulbs have mercury in them, so if you break those open, you're again at more risk of exposure to that. If you eat fish, you're actually more likely to get mercury that you can't digest than in the, th than the thimerosal in the multidose vial vaccines. In fact, foods like fish have methylmercury in them, which can be toxic to the nervous system over long periods and with high enough doses, obviously. Again, we can all go eat fish. It's not a big problem. And even pregnant women are advised to watch out what types of fish they eat because of the mercury in it. I'm not going to go a whole lot into that, but basically the whole argument that the uh, anti-vax movement was making with thimerosal is one, debunked because of how easily it's metabolized compared to the other types of mercury. And two, you're more likely to get toxic off mercury from fish than you are from the vaccines. So that kind of shoots their whole argument in the foot, especially if there's somebody who's like a pescatarian. So again, these are two totally different types of mercury in the way your body handles them. Uh, yeah, it's in some of them. Most of them, it's not. I The vaccines I give out now, for the most part, I think there's one that isn't. Our single-use uh, syringes that we just kind of screw the, the needle on, stab it that way, and go from there. And the ones that aren't, aren't little vials that are still single-use and therefore don't have the thimerosal preservative in them, so it's not a problem. Other things that have mercury in them, just kind of throw them out there to show you how common this is. And again, this is the methylmercury, which can be toxic, not the thimerosal, which gets turned into ethylmercury, which is easier for your body, to, much easier for your body to clear. Some batteries have them. LCD screens have them in them. Archery bows and arrows actually have them. There's also a lot of older appliances. Barometers. So if you have a barometer in your garage or something like I do, that actually has mercury in it. So you have to watch out and make sure that's disposed of properly. And of course, your light bulb. You're, again, you're exponentially more likely to have the issues with mercury from eating one fish than you are from getting a vaccine. So I would like the uh, anti-vax crowd to chew on that one a little bit. You do have to be careful of what you, again, what you give with vaccines. There's a few of them that are alive. They brought back the nasal flu one this year. MMR is a live vaccine as well. Shingles, there is a live one, but it's kind of being phased out in favor of Shingrix, so that's not as much of an issue. But that was a good topic for discussion here because Shingrix was one that they moved from a live vaccine to not live vaccine and it has adjuvants added to get a better response. And it is two doses, very similar to the way kind of MMR is where it's two doses now, but it's not a live vaccine. And that one's something around the neighborhood of 95 to 97% effective in most people. And a big step with that was because it's not live, you can actually give it to immunocompromised people as of right now with physician approval. And I, I've done that myself, called the physician. They were like, yeah, it's a great idea. I know there's no studies out on it, but you're good to give it because I know what's in it and how it works. And it's not a live vaccine. So that's kind of showing where, again, although some of the costs of vaccines went up and Shingrix is a little bit more expensive than what Zostavax was because it is two doses versus one, even though it is cheaper per dose. It's actually more effective and it's safer. So that's, that, if anything, that tells me, hey, these companies are actually doing something that's good for help keep us healthy. And yeah, they're making money off it. And we can talk about that in another episode. But at least for now, that's something that is good that they're doing with vaccines. Another thing with vaccines here, herd immunity is one of the key reasons why I'm a huge proponent of this, is herd immunity is how we keep people from who can't get the vaccine protected. So as I mentioned earlier, people who maybe have an active HIV who don't have the titers to protect them from the measles, mumps, and rubella diseases, because they can't and they can't get a booster from the MMR vaccine, that's huge because the herd immunity for some of these diseases is very high, which I'll get into in a second here. But it's important to keep them protected because they can really be hurt and through no way can they protect themselves from it. It also goes for some little kids and people who have other diseases too that are autoimmune related or people who are going through stuff like chemotherapy where it wipes out your immune system. They're very, very, very unprotected. And so therefore, a lot of them, they have to get boosters of their vaccines to get protected after they've went through some of these things. So that's just something to think about. Some of these people who are going through the worst times of their lives can be wiped out by some of these just basic things that are preventable, which is why we need the herd immunity. 
So again, yeah, little kids are something you got to watch for people with chronic immune system diseases or people who are also fighting other infections. That's another thing we always ask giving vaccines is do you feel sick today? No, this, you know, we go through all those screening questions to make sure we're doing what is right. And so the immune system responds to it adequately. One thing that people always tell us is we got, I got the flu from the flu shot. Can't happen. It's dead. It's not even alive. It'd be like getting hit by a parked car is an analogy I use a lot of times. You might have walked into it or got sick from something else at the same time, but there's no way you can actually get sick from something like the flu shot. MMR, yes, there's a very small chance of that. But again, that's why we try and screen everybody appropriately to make sure that it's minimal with that. So even though these aren't these vaccines aren't always for everybody, we do have to consider their immune response with them and see how well they work, which is why we give multiple shots for some and some only get one shot. So MMR now is a two vaccine, a two dose vaccine, or it used to be only one. So we found that we get a much better response by giving the two shots. Some people may actually have to have their titers drawn to things like MMR to see if they have antibodies because this shot is not 100% effective. It's about 95-97% respective from one dose, which is why we need to make sure we get the 100% vaccination rate. It's not always 100% effective, but with that, the second dose does make it much, much more effective. Some of the stats I was looking at for measles to get herd immunity, it does need around a 93% herd immunity rate, which means 93% of people need to get the vaccine. That's assuming that 100% of people have a response. So really, when you look at the, it's not quite 100% effective, it's in that 97% range, you really need to get about 95% people vaccinated to keep the herd immunity. That was something I thought was pretty interesting, is that, hey, you know what, at least we're willing to admit our vaccines aren't perfect, but to help keep those diseases eradicated, eliminated as much as possible, we need to kind of overshoot a little bit just to make sure, because again, nothing in this world is perfect or one other thing with measles was as much as people say, oh, it's a natural thing. It happens all the time. Look what happened back in the day in like the 50s and the 60s. Before the vaccine was brought in, there was an average of 500,000 cases of measles a year in the United States. 500,000. Obviously, those could lead to deaths. Those could lead to encephalopathy or physical impairments and things of those nature. So that's why this is so important. It's preventable and it can save severe life-altering complications from it. That's why I'm so huge on, on this vaccine topic is because an ounce of prevention is a pound of cure. There was a large outbreak in 1989 that actually led to the MMR vaccine being bumped up to the two-dose schedule. So there was some debate about if people need a second dose or not, depending on when you're born. I believe if I remember correctly from when I was looking at the guidelines, if you're born before 1967 you are, and you had one dose, you're good. Most of those people did get enough from the natural exposure to measles that they're already protected from it and they should have the antibodies to it. And again, they can always have the titers drawn to see if the people have antibodies to it to make sure that they're protected. That's a key thing with stuff like this is if you're questioning it, there's always something we can go do that should be covered by anyone's insurance to go make sure they're adequately covered. Uh, so 1989, there was a little bit change in the way it was dosed. So some of the people, I'll call myself on this, I was born before 89, and when I looked back at my records, didn't have everything, went and had my titers drawn. The way it came back, it said it was fine. I actually went and got a second shot just to boost my immunity to it, because, and this was in 2012, just because I knew how bad some of the anti-vax movement was getting. Not exactly the best way it's recommended, but I felt that that was the best for me, given the, the patient population I work with and everything. I want to make sure that I was protecting them and myself as well. So kind of going through some of the herd immunity again a little bit here. Some of the uh, other ones aren't quite as high as measles. And that's because measles is just so virulent and easy to pass between people. Pertussis is right there, though, and there's been a lot of uh, pertussis outbreaks I was reading in people who aren't vaccinated in states like Michigan, where they've tried to really ramp up their vaccination rates, especially because this is a preventable disease. The threshold for pertussis is somewhere in that 92 to 94 percent range, so just a hair below measles, but basically the same for all, all intents and purposes. Rubella, which is also in the MMR shot, it's the R part, needs an 85 percent vaccination rate to achieve herd, herd immunity. Diphtheria needs 85 percent, which is in Tdap. Polio needs 80 to 85%, which I was just reading another article that the anti-vax movement has actually helped kind of cause some polio outbreaks. I think it was, was it in Pakistan or Syria, one of those uh, other countries over there in like the Middle East where people stopped getting the vaccines because they were afraid of what people were putting in their body and now they've had more polio cases. Again, something that's, we've basically wiped out in the United States for the most part. There's been a few cases every year because people who don't get their vaccines and contract something. But again, it just kind of shows that the anti-vax movement is completely wrong on this, and that's why we need to get all of our childhood vaccines, is to prevent these diseases from coming back. 
as I mentioned in the previous episode, uh, FDR, our president during World War II, was a survivor of polio. And most people might not remember this, but he actually had severe walking issues where he was always in a wheelchair. That's why he was seated. So many of the pictures were taken of him. I think it was in the movie Pearl Harbor. They kind of reenacted part where he stood up and everyone was kind of all worried about it. And that's most people didn't necessarily know that, that his physical impairment was because of polio. Again, we don't have iron lungs anymore because we basically eliminated that disease. And it only needs an 80 to 85% threshold. In fact, I believe the March of Dimes was actually started to help eliminate and fight polio. And they did such a good job, they had to actually move their mission onto something else because polio is basically eliminated now. Uh, other old diseases, smallpox. We do not, we basically eradicate smallpox from the world. No one has smallpox anymore. But if you see anybody who's a little bit older, I believe if they were born before 1960 or 65, and you look at one of their shoulders, they'll have what is called a little pockmark or a little scar on one of their shoulders. That is because that is where they got the smallpox vaccine. They keep it from spreading. They, we protected everybody, and we did such a good job of it. We basically eliminated it. For anybody who sits there and thinks, hey, you know, well, we, have, we eliminated it. We don't have to worry about it anymore. Yeah, but the CDC still keeps some of it on hand just in case they need to ramp up production or if there's some sort of ter- a biological warfare, th- something like that that happens. So it is important to still kind of have, even though we don't have to vaccinate from it anymore. That's how good we used to be at this. One of the ironic things here is our current president always preaches, you know, make America great again. But then he sits there and says, we give kids too many vaccines these days. We do, we do this and it's just too much all at once. Well, I think smallpox kind of proves that wrong because America was great and America actually helped eliminate a disease by being on the forefront of this. Another uh, disease here in the MMR shot, mumps. Mumps needs about an 80 to 86% threshold for herd immunity, meaning obviously 80 to 86% of people need to get the vaccination. And another one I thought that was pretty interesting was flu actually needs upwards of 80% of healthy people and 90% of high-risk people to actually get the full benefit of herd immunity, which is something that we fall way short of almost all the time. A lot of people think, oh, sure, it's just the flu. It's just the flu. It happens. We get it. I haven't got it in five years. You know, it's not a big deal. But some recent statistics here for you, since we're looking at some facts with vaccines. In the 2017 to 2018 flu season, the flu actually killed roughly 79 to 80,000 Americans, which was one of the biggest years on records that we've had. In fact, the highest year for flu was obviously 1918. I believe that was the Spanish flu. I'm forgetting off the top of my head. I didn't take notes on that, where it killed half a million people. So the flu, although it happens and it comes around every year, is very preventable by getting the vaccine. And again, one of the things with the flu shot is it's not always accurate. They're, they put in up to four strains in the quadrivalent one or three strains in the trivalent one. I mean, it has, and usually they only get about 70% of them. But again, it helps prepare your body to recognize something similar. Analogy I always use, if you train for a football game, be a walk-in and show up and it happens to be a rugby match, at least you're in shape to play. That's kind of how the flu shot works. At least we're getting it so your body can recognize it to be better prepared for it. So if you do get sick, it won't be as bad. Again, win-win all around. Also in 2017, 2018, 49 million people in the United States got the flu shot. 49 million people. We're only a nation of like, what, 320 some million people. So that's pretty high. There was 960,000 hospitalizations. And you want to talk money spent on curing or treating a disease, Flu is up there every year. In fact, I believe that year it cost, the flu cost us, through direct and indirect costs, the economy somewhere around $21 billion, which is one of the worst years. And obviously, with inflation and growth, that's going to be much higher than years in, like, say, the 60s or 70s. But, again, that's the numbers we have to work with, and that's what we're using. The flu normally only affects 12,000, upwards of 56,000 people that it can kill in a year. But, again, 2017 is a really bad year, and it killed up to 80,000 people. Not totally preventable, but it's mostly preventable. And if we get more people to get their flu shot every year, obviously we can help protect those people who are who are getting sick from it. Uh, most people who were died were people who were obviously had immune system problems, were elderly, were already hospitalized, or little kids, people who had weakened immune systems, basically. But there are some people who don't who can get it real bad. Uh, Melissa, on the previous episode, did talk about her family contracted the uh, swine flu, or H1N1, I believe it is, and they were down for a week. And they, her kids were asthmatic, and that when the asthmatic patient who already has breathing problems starts getting the flu, obviously you need to breathe to live. That can be a major problem that can really hamper them and even threaten their lives if it gets bad enough. And again, most health insurance providers do cover these things for minimal or no cost out of pocket, so it's very easy to provide. Also, most uh, county health clinics or health administration boards provide these type of things for $0 out of cost, and I think a lot of them don't even have to necessarily bill your insurance. So the accessibility is out there. But this is why I'm a huge proponent of pharmacists actually being able to do more vaccines and especially things like flu, which we all do when I think across all 50 states now. 
but we just need to increase the access to these sort of things and really eliminate, eliminate the reasons that people shouldn't get them or eliminate the hurdles that call, prevent them from getting them. Now, again, some people think, hey, you know, smallpox was really good. We just vaccinated everybody and now we're good. We eliminated it. Unfortunately, that doesn't work for all diseases. Tetanus is one that, again, we can go as far as we want to really do the, um, the vaccinations. But if people don't get it, uh, there's a bacteria in the soil that can actually cause tetanus. So right there, even if you, we have everybody who's protected and the one person doesn't get it and they're like, hey, I'm protected by herd immunity because everyone else has it, doesn't always work. That's why we always say, hey, you got to get your Tdap shot or your tetanus shot every 10 years. That's super important to help make sure that people have the immunity so that they can, you know, in case they are exposed to this through other means, even if it's not person to person, if they're exposed through they got cut and they were outside or they were in their garden digging and things like that. So we're kind of going over some of the other stuff since obviously the anti-vax movement likes to really focus on the MMR vaccine. And we kind of talked about this a little bit earlier. If you were born before 57, then you were likely vaccinated due to exposure of measles, although you may not be immune. Again, they do recommend that if you're not sure or you have any questions about it, to get your titers drawn and they can tell you if you are immune to it or you have the antibodies in your system or not. This is, if you are not, you do have to get two shots again, separate by at least 28 days. You're also okay if you had the measles. So if you had the measles and survived, congratulations. You now have the memory cells in your immune system that can protect you from measles. But again, if you had to go through something else that had to wipe out your immune system for whatever reason, it might be worth checking on to make sure that you didn't totally wipe out all those memory cells for you. That's important to help keep you and other people protected. Again, the one thing that vaccines like to really tell everyone is it's not always about you. It's about other people as well. And if you're not sure if you got one or two of the vaccine and what year you were born, you can always check your records with an immunization provider. Some are better than others. Some state databases are better than others. Mostly talked about that with the impact sys system here in Ohio, which is a pretty good system, but definitely has its kinks maybe worked out. And if you got the two standard doses or you're born after 1989 and you know you're all caught up with your vaccinations, you should be good. Again, if you have questions or some sort of problem that developed, you can always have your titers drawn. I want to reiterate that because of how many cases that we're seeing of measles worldwide and in the U.S. now we're, I believe, 12 to 1,300 cases, which is the most we've had on record since almost since I was born, so the better part of 30 years. And if you aren't sure and you maybe don't have access to get your titers drawn or it's not covered by your insurance, go check and you can always get the, the series again. It's not necessarily the worst thing if you get that. You do have to be careful, though, if you get a live vaccine like MMR that you need to watch who you're around. You need to obviously watch your own health, but you need to make sure you're not around people who have majorly compromised immune systems because there is a little bit of the vaccine shedding that you there's a very small chance you could pass to someone like them. So if they're somebody who has a, a current active uh, that their immune system is seriously compromised or somebody's going through chemo or very little kids who might not be up to date with all their shots yet, that's something you really want to watch out for because that can pose an issue to their health, not just yours. So kind of moving on to the measles topic here a little bit, uh, the World Health Organization, or WHO, I might refer to them as WHO a few times, uh, just because it's easier than saying World Health Organization every time. They actually call out the lack of vaccinations as a major threat to world health. If this wasn't like a, kind of a call to arms, then I don't know what is. They specifically call it the anti-vax movement as being a major impact on the world's health and the cost that we have in delivering healthcare to people. Kind of some numbers here by the years. Um, in 2016, there was almost a, a super low number of uh, measles cases in Europe. They were down to 5,273. A few years before that, we were kind of up and down in the 20s to 30s. 2009, we're down as low as 7,000 again. But from 2016 on, this is what I like to kind of focus on with how measles has really grown with the anti-vax movement. Because you got to remember, as people start following more down this path of the anti-vaxxers, they're not getting their kids vaccinated. And so that's where you're seeing this. Also, that's a huge burden where some of the refugees that are coming over from Syria and all these other places who may not have been up to date with their vaccines because they didn't have access to health care. So again, they might be susceptible to diseases such as this since they aren't fully eliminated, even though we call them that because they're just, they're so low, it's almost non-existent. So 2016, there was about 5,200 cases of measles in Europe. 2017, there was 25,800. Okay, a little bit back up closer to par from what they were seeing in previous years. 2018, there was roughly 83,000 cases. Okay, that kind of boomed a lot. Right there, we're about five times from 2016 to 2017, about triple from 2017 to 2018. And then in 2019, we're, as of early, I think it was early to mid-August, there's already 90,000 plus cases of measles in Europe. 
that's huge. So we're seeing the number. And now, granted, Europe is more packed than the United States with population-wise, and there's a lot more person-to-person contact with just the way they, they interact with each other versus the way we do. But that's huge because we're just seeing this number go up almost exponentially. Now, that's why the World Health Organization is calling out that this anti-vax movement is a huge issue to the world's health. So we focus a lot on this because it is the MMR, because it does have one of the highest thresholds for herd immunity. So if we can keep everyone protected from this one, that hopefully means that along the way we've had those conversations and make sure they're protected against all of their other vaccines that they need or their other preventable diseases. And the kind of the reason that we're looking at this one and why obviously Melissa is so worried about it at her organization over there at the uh, Academy of P- American Academy of Pediatrics was because this one's kind of like the canary in the coal mine. You know, the first thing we start seeing because people aren't up to date, it's the first sign. Because if we're seeing this, we're thinking, oh, those people probably don't have their other vaccines. They might, they might not. But again, that's kind of the canary in the coal mine scenario, which if you're familiar with basically the canary is the first one to die in the coal mine if there's ever some sort of toxic gas leak. So if the canary stops singing, get the heck out of the mine. Kind of the same way here. We start seeing these measles outbreaks happen. Uh Uh-oh, what's going on? Make sure we're all protected. With vaccines, one thing I always like to look at is the cost of everything. I think that's huge. I think it's a very important thing that when we look at, when you look at cost-benefit ratio, right? Is this worth it for somebody or is it is it maybe not? Again, that's a huge thing with healthcare. Is it worth treating hypertension or is it not? Is it worth treating somebody's diabetes or is it not? It depends on where you're at. I would say in most cases, treatment is usually a good option, but it is something we always do need a way when we're looking at healthcare and cost benefits. So the CDC estimates from 1994 to 2018 from a, that the U.S. saved $406 billion, yes, $406 billion in direct healthcare costs because of vaccinations. And they saved $1.88 trillion in indirect costs for obviously people missing work and what have you. Let those numbers sink in for a minute. We save $406 billion in direct costs. So if you're saying $406 billion that's, and that we save, that's not even counting the cost of the vaccine. Or that's counting the cost of the vaccine, but that's obviously meaning above that even. So $406 billion in roughly a 14-year period. So we've had, and since 2014, we've had roughly 1,900 cases of measles, plus the 12 to 1,300 in 2019. And to try and contain measles, we have to, on average, spend $140,000 per case because there's there's measures that go in to make sure that this doesn't cause a huge outbreak like what's going on in New York. Or as, we refer, or as I referred to in the other podcast, what happened in, I think it was Holmes County with the Amish up here. Or as Melissa mentioned, the Disneyland outbreak in California, which led to some new laws getting passed in California because they were so worried about it. Again, focusing back on costs here, each year we spend $27 billion, with a B, dollars to contain vaccine-preventable diseases. $27 billion. That's huge because if we can cut that number down by a factor of 5 or even 10, obviously I'd rather spend $2 billion than $27 billion. That's just basic math, right? Why should I spend more than I don't have to, don't have to spend? And that's a lot of money that can be spent on other programs, whether it be, I don't know, childhood education or something that's universally accepted here that we could easily spend money on. And again, not all of these are prevented, but if we cut down, that's the goal here, right? Like we might not save every dollar of that $27 billion, but if we can get it down, that's a huge factor that we can just eliminate from having to spend money on. And healthcare costs, we all know, are rising faster than everything else. So if we can save money, isn't that a good thing? Isn't that a win for us all? Does that mean lower premiums? Lower taxes spent since the government doesn't, which puts the major bills like Medicaid and Medicare doesn't have to spend. So looking at that, a stat I found pretty interesting was for every $1 we spend on vaccines, we save $10.90. I'll get into this a little bit later, but if a flu shot costs 40 bucks, that means we're saving roughly 400 to 450 bucks right there by giving a flu shot. Now, obviously it doesn't work. You give one shot, you save money. You have to kind of focus on them and it's the herd immunity thing that helps save you, save you all the money. But again, that's why we need to make sure that we're doing a better job of increasing our vaccines. So looking back on the, the 2017, 2018 year, this was like a worst case scenario for something such as common as flu. The vaccine was at best 25% effective. It might've been even less if you got the trivalent versus the quadrivalent vaccine. But that year, we still saved, set from CDC estimates, 7 million people from getting sick and stopped 109,000 hospitalizations and prevented 8,000 deaths. So although those numbers were sky high, we still saved 7 million people from getting sick and stopped 8,000 people from dying. That's a lot. That's a huge impact for a vaccine that that year was pretty inaccurate because they guessed the strains wrong. Again, just because they guessed the strains wrong doesn't mean that your body isn't better prepared. It just these, you know, it might not be perfectly prepared, I guess. So this is one of the worst years for the flu, at least in recent years, and for the flu vaccine effectiveness. 
still, but even if you got the flu shot and you, there was a wrong strain or whatever it was in there, you still reduced your chance of getting sick by 38%. That's pretty good numbers. And as somebody who works in healthcare, I'm dealing with sick people all the time. And people really underestimate how much they interact with people, whether you're outside driving, you're going to a restaurant, you're going to, I don't know, library, schools. If you can reduce your chance of getting sick by 38% on a bad year where they didn't guess the strains right, that's still a good number I'd be willing to take. So in another year where it's more accurate, say the one year they hit it perfect, right, and their 70% is, is what they can prevent with by getting guessing all the strains right, that number could easily jump 50, 60%, no big deal. That's a ton of money that we save then that's being spent on something that's very preventable by getting a simple cost-effective flu shot at a pharmacy or a doctor's office or at a pediatrician's office. Just by getting a simple shot, we can save tons of money. So getting into some of that money side, the year 2017 to 2018, the flu cost was $21.39 billion in productivity that was lost. And when you think about that, it kind of has a huge double effect because we lost all that production, so we weren't producing things or goods as much. We spent more money on the, like, the healthcare, which I believe has actually worked in there a little bit. But on top of that, we also lost the tax revenue from that production. That's obviously money that can fund our state Medicaid, state Medicare, or federal Medicare programs. But it's also money that, you know, we had to spend then. So we had a huge net loss because we had to spend a treat, and we don't have the tax revenue that could easily help buffer that out. First perspective, the average year flu still cost us a loss in productivity of $16 billion. That's just massive, just how much that actually, I was shocked when you start seeing Bs with numbers and adding up all the zeros that are behind these. Uh, again, the average flu shot for the four strain, which is the better one, is 40 bucks, roughly out of pocket. Depends on where you go. If you go to the healthcare or the uh, county health clinic, it can be zero for you, depending. And most people don't have to pay anything out of pocket. Most insurances cover it for free. One other thing I thought, just to kind of show you directly how effective the flu shot can be, because, you you know, say you're healthy and you're like, you know what, even if I get it, I can go get some pills for it. Well, that that's great, but the average out-of-pocket expense for an office visit to treat the flu and get medication is $135. Tamiflu generic without insurance, so say you don't have insurance, is $120. Bucks. And the, the worst part about the, that medication is, and ones like it, you have to treat immediately within the first 24 to 48 hours of symptoms. And all it does is shorten the duration of the length of the flu. So it doesn't really necessarily even like kill it. It's not like an antibiotic that you're getting treated bacterial disease where it just, you know, your immune system's attacking it and it helps actually physically kill the bacteria. It just helps, you know, helps you recover a little quicker, essentially, is all it really does. And on top of that, if there's a year where it's really bad, like 2017, 2018, as a pharmacist, we've had to make calls before of who we give it to. I've had people come in who were healthy, didn't have asthma, didn't have any chronic conditions, and the doctor wrote for it as a preventative. And I'm like, you know what? It's been on back order. And I know that, again, I was working in a store that specialized in HIV. I need to save this for some of my other patients who come in who could really be in a life-threatening situation for it because that's who it's going to make a bigger difference for. And that's a very tough discussion to have to have with somebody when you're like, hey, the medicine's on my shelves, but I can't give it to you because I need to actually save it for somebody who needs it more than you. That's why you should get the flu shot because we need to avoid situations like that so that we can help allocate medications to people who do need it when they need it. Kind of moving on a little further here, a University of North Carolina UNC study showed that vaccine-preventable diseases cost, or cost us around $8.95 billion annually on average. And the unvaccinated people represent the majority of that. Actually, they represent 7.1 of the $8.5 billion in those costs. That's huge. That just shows you right there that we're, we're kind of our own worst enemy here. If people aren't getting their vaccines to prevent things, that's causing our economy $7.1 billion. This only looked at the year 2015, which we didn't have nearly the outbreak of measles that we have currently in the United States. And there's also been even recent cases of like uh, tetanus and people having to, the, the crazy expensive costs that go into that. So I think it's worth looking at that that year was probably much better than what we're currently looking at for 2019. So I expect that number to go up to at least $10 billion for how much we're seeing, if not more. And I hate seeing money kind of just thrown out the window when we can prevent it. These shots, most of them are under 100 bucks, Most of them are 50 60 for these preventable diseases. Some of them get a little bit more. But either way, I'd rather spend a couple hundred here or maybe a few thousand total, whatever it is, to avoid $8, 9000000000 billion in cost of health care. So again, $8.95 billion is our annual cost for vaccine-preventable diseases. And this was not looking at something like your pneumonia or your flu. This was mainly looking at your, like your, MM, your measles, your mom's rubella, all those other type of things, your polios, that sort of stuff. There was a few studies out there that were talking about the cost to vaccinate everybody, but I really didn't like the way they were modeled because they assumed that everyone could actually get the shot. And that's we know that's not true because of autoimmune problems and other things like I've talked about multiple times on this podcast already. 
So moving forward, I want to look at some of the laws here, since this is a political podcast that have actually been very effective and some other uh, kind of hot topic issues that have been brought up when it comes around vaccines. Mississippi actually has the best childhood vaccination rate in the country. Yes, Mississippi. The state that if I remember I looked at last was the most obese state and had some of the worst cases of diabetes and hypertension in the United States as a whole is actually number one in childhood vaccinations. The main reason for that is they passed a law that said there are only medical exemptions allowed in the state, no religious, no philosophical, and you have to have a like you know a signed doctor's note and everything, and it can't just be like a, a basic oh yeah like I talked to them they they don't want their vaccine, no, it has to be like documented why they can't get it. And if you look, they have had no measles outbreaks in 2019, not one case. As of the date I'm looking at this is uh, September 8th when I'm recording this, they haven't had one one outbreak that I've seen on the CDC website. That shows you how effective how effective they are because almost every other state has had at least one case. Looking at another state, California, which is not similar in almost any way, whether it be population, it's more liberal, Mississippi's more conservative. They're very different states in almost every way you can imagine. California actually has a similar law on file. Now, they have had some problems where there's one doctor, I believe his name is Bob Sears, who basically has a template that he just signs for anybody who wants it. They come in, they pay the money, and he signs an exemption for them. And they're trying to help fix some of that right now. And there's a big hot button on that about how Bob Sears actually is very anti-vax. He's basically making money off selling exemptions to people. If you can make a business, that's where I'm seeing with a lot of these anti-vax people. They're making a business somehow off of being anti-vax. We have Cheryl Tenpenny in Ohio, who I haven't seen the, the number of cases she's signed for medical exemptions. But when you look at her website and her practice, she's clearly making money by selling to the anti-vax crowd. That's one thing I want to kind of call out here is whenever you look at the anti-vax, people think, oh, they're doing it for the health. They're doing it because they're beliefs. No, if you dig deep enough, a lot of times you can find the money in this and there's somebody who's making money off it who's, you know, just keeps pulling up that bullhorn and yelling about, you know, how bad vaccines are. I want to call that out. Bob Sears is definitely doing that. He's making money off this because of the California law and he can sell exemptions to it. And I hope they crack down on this. So what spurred their outbreak was the Disneyland outbreak, and I believe it was 2015. I might have misspoke earlier and said 2012, but yeah, 2015 is when they put the law in. It came in place in 2016. They've only had 44 cases of measles in 2019 as of late May, which is the last number I could find. Despite neighboring states having large outbreaks, such as uh, Portland and Oregon had outbreaks, I think Nevada also had several. But the amazing thing about California is they have a huge tourism population, and they have a lot of people who come up, obviously, from Mexico and the southern side. They have a lot of people who visit uh, San Francisco, L.A., internationally, and they only had 44 cases in 2019. I think that is very commendable given the, we're at about 12 to 1300 cases and they are the largest state by far population wise. I think they're almost 50% bigger than Texas in population and they're not having the outbreaks. Last I saw El Paso is still currently has an outbreak going on in Texas because their laws in part aren't restricted and not enforced the way that California's are. And I think that's great. Now, California does have a Senate bill uh, currently in 2019 though they're trying to tighten up some of those exemptions a little bit to help crack down the Bob Sears of the world. I believe it was Senate Bill 276. It might have been 277. It was a very similar number to the one in 2015. It's worth a look either way. And they're really trying to help make this stricter to help keep their population protected. And I think it's a great thing because they do have a lot of people who visit from outside the country that state, a lot of tourism and a lot of stuff that they can't necessarily regulate to protect their people. In uh, 2016, 2017, to kind of show you how effective this was, their vaccination rate actually got up to 95.8% of the uh, the childhood vaccinations, meaning they're currently fully up to date which is huge because at that number, we have now full herd immunity against every single disease I mentioned earlier that's preventable. Flu isn't included there, but if you could somehow get flu up to anywhere around you know, the 80%, man, a state like that with an economy of their size, the billions of dollars you would save is just insane. I would love to see the flu shot mandated, but at the same time, I understand the civil liberties around that because it isn't nearly as effective as the other ones. You know, people do get the flu every year. I get it. But, you know, if we can prevent deaths and keep people out of hospitals, that's, uh, to me, that's just a great thing to do. In all honesty, people might sit there and call me out as being a pharmacist, having a conflict of interest. That's fine. I get it. I totally understand. They're like, oh, you're looking to profit off of it. But I'm an Eagle Scout, and I just believe in doing what's right for people. And, you know, that's why I don't even put up that fight with the flu shot. I look at the childhood vaccines because those are so much more impactful that, you know, a kid could get a disease or, you know, lose their life or have something horrible happen to them before they ever get a start. That is just absolutely tragic to me, which is why I focus on that side quite a bit. I'm glad to hear we really have people fighting, at least in my state, like Melissa for the American Academy of Pediatrics that are just so gung-ho about this because at those rates, we 
can make sure that we're living truly in a first world country and not having to deal with these measles outbreaks and scares that are going on like they currently are in our country. Uh, and one call out with the California exemptions was uh, in 2015, 2016, they only had like 0.25% of people, I think it was, or 0.26 that had a medical exemption on file. And now that's reached nearly 1% of all children. The one issue I couldn't find with that is I couldn't find reasons why they had them, like if they were documented, like they had an immune system problem, or if they were just a note signed by this crazy Dr. Bob Sears out there who's just like passing out willy-nilly to make money from these office visits for them and then obviously get the repeat business from them and have them spread it to everyone else they know. Another state was that has somewhere that's a little bit looser than these Mississippi and California laws was Michigan. In Michigan, you can opt out, but you have to attend a seminar, which Ms. Melissa referred to, and get a document that you attended and you're still choosing to opt out. She said it resulted in a 33% increase in their vaccination rate because now if you don't want to get the vaccine, you are having a hurdle imposed on you instead of the people who are doing the right thing. Ohio currently has bills in there that are very much, hey, if you are going to school and you need to get the vaccines, here's your form and here's your opt-out form. That's what Representative Manning was uh, trying to pass in the Ohio legislature through a group that is backing it called the Ohio Advocates for Medical Freedom. Again, those anti-vax groups have very misleading names. And, when you, and they're really funny when you follow some of these groups, the stuff they promote. In fact, this group, the Ohio Advocates of Medical Freedom, I actually follow them just to kind of see what they're doing out there. And they post horrible studies all the time from like 1980s and like South Sudan where people had all, there's more, all these like random deaths that happen to kids from the vaccine. I forget exactly where it was. It was somewhere over in Africa. And what was really funny about it was you read the article and it was only retrospective. They didn't look at exactly why these people died in an area like that, that could have been war torn or there's a bunch of other issues. And basically in the article, it said that these people live in a kind of horrible condition. So who knows what they died from? They could have died from dehydration. They could have died from this bad drought. They could have died in an auto accident. There could have been a hundred other ways but they never cite when they, how they died. And so these people are actually citing these studies saying, oh, they died from the vaccine. See, they kill people. That just shows you how messed up their logic is. And then when you question them on it, they call you a shill. They call you everything else that you can think of because they won't admit that maybe their belief is wrong. And this is why I really like someone like Ethan Lindberger was because he went out and challenged the status quo he was raised on and was like, hey, let's see what actually is going on with this? What, you know, what is the, like the real reason people get these vaccines? And I'm glad that he's out promoting everything the way he does. I'm glad he's such an advocate. I would gladly stand hand in hand with him in what he's trying to help advocate for because he has, without even going to college, went and did his research and read everything and said, wow, these people are pretty crazy because they won't even accept people who question them basically. But yeah, so Michigan had a huge increase in their uh, vaccination rates. I couldn't necessarily find the exact statistic to try and verify what Melissa said, but I did find many articles that it increased, it increased, it increased. So I'm going to take for granted that she probably knows her material on this very well, since obviously she's a huge uh, liaison for this type of thing, and say that, yeah, they increased it upwards of 30% for their vaccination rate, which is huge because I was reading how bad uh, pertussis is out there in Michigan and some of the other diseases that are preventable. And in some of the counties that, you know, are home to like cities like Detroit, that's a huge problem. I mean, it might not be the Flint water crisis, but it's got to be right up there for problems when you can obviously avoid preventable issues. Another issue when it comes to some of these, these laws, right? So a lot of the states have uh, the religious exemption still, even if they don't have the personal exemption. No major religion in the United States has an objection to vaccines. In 2017, actually, Islamic leaders outside of the U.S. even issued a statement in support of vaccines. There was some kind of kickback about if these were pork-derived or what type of animal they were derived from. And they said, look, anything that basically has to do with that, we're willing to accept that because we need to protect our people. And I actually applaud them for that because they were very clear. And when you read their, art, when you read their statement they put out, some of the religions that are against vaccines, again, these are not very common ones. They're not major ones. And most of them aren't even in the U.S., the Dutch Reformed Church does have a bit of an issue. They've waffled back and forth. Um, they had an outbreak in 2017, or 1,200 cases, I'm sorry, in, 20, in 2013, they had an outbreak of 1,200 cases of measles in Europe. They were a huge pocket where it blew up, and they're a very small, concentrated area. So it's pretty interesting to see that this group comes out, and they're against vaccines, and they have a huge outbreak of a preventable disease. I don't know if you can call that karma or what you call that, but I thought that was pretty interesting. Another one in the United States, the uh, Christian Science Church, they've waffled a bit. Some of them said that the vaccines are a gift from God to help protect us. Other ones say that, no, our immune system is the gift from God and nature needs to be the way. Whatever that's worth, 
it's a very, very, very small religious sect. I totally disagree with that. I actually agree with the part that says, hey, we're smart enough to make these vaccines. That's our gift from God. We should really kind of work on that and use that to our advantage, right? Since obviously we're, you know, if we're built in his image or what have you, and we were able to come up with this, we should use it. I'm not going to get into their religion too much. I don't know a lot about it. I just read that they were very divided on that and have waffled back and forth with some of those uh, hot topic, if you will, issues of vaccines in their church. But again, no major religion is against vaccines in the United States. There was a note that some Catholics thought because they were anti-abortion or against abortion or pro-life, whatever you want to call it, that they couldn't get vaccines because they were made with aborted fetus tissue. There was some thought that that had happened a while back and they'd use some some of those things in originally making the vaccine. But currently, no vaccines are made with aborted fetus tissue. Again, no vaccines are made with aborted fetus tissue. That is not an issue. So with all that kind of summed up here, that's it's a pretty dry episode, I'll be honest, but it's a lot of good information out there so people can be well-armed if they want to have a discussion around vaccines with some of their political leaders or what have you. Some of the calls to action, kind of combining the last two episodes, are we need to improve our vaccination tracking. Melissa kind of brought that up with some of the programs in Ohio and around the U.S. We really need a more unilateral, uniform system um, that helps document everything and keeps everything cleaned up. So we know exactly what people got. And I, I would love to echo those sentiments. In fact, I, as a pharmacist who's this time of year giving out, it feels like hundreds of vaccines a day with the flu getting ramped up. I would love to know because I've had patients come in before and I actually had a patient, we asked them all the questions and went through it and they were like, you know, they're sitting there and I gave them their flu shot and then they go, when do I need to come back for my next one? And I'm like, uh, you not till next year. And they're like, oh, well, this is my second one this year. And I'm like, oh, uh, wait, wait a minute. And then I have to go, you know, file paperwork and all this stuff. But I had no way of double checking that. I just took their word for it. And again, they were misinformed on it. And that's probably like an over-vaccination, but that's a way we could help, you know, save costs and make sure we're getting the medicine to the right people at the right time. I don't know, when it comes to government database, I would love to see the CDC kind of get behind that because things like this help them locate pockets who if there is an outbreak where where it could be an issue like new york we're finding out was a huge hotbed for the measles spreading rampant and that could be definitely prevented or at least helped contained if the cdc had a better way of tracking things like that through a uniform site I would wish my state would have a better one but i think that this is something we really need to take more national or have one state kind of you know do it and then show results and then push it off to the the federal level to really help contain these outbreaks and make sure we're keeping everyone healthier and make sure that we have better documentation of it. And that could save just tons of times and issues. It would have to include all vaccines. And yes, I said even flu shots, which might be redundant, but just so that that way we have better documentation of all of it. And we have to include it from all providers as well. Pharmacists, um, nurse practitioners, pediatricians, oncologists, whoever it is who's given these type of shots. One way they could do that would be to give like an initial sign-up incentive to these offices or the pharmacies with a drop-dead date. Say if they're going to say, hey, we'll foot the bill for 60% of it or 70% of it or we'll foot the whole bill, whatever it is, right? Because this saves them so much money. Again, every dollar spent on vaccine saves us roughly $11 in other costs. So we can save a ton of money if we do this. So if they were to have a, some sort of initial sign-up incentive to the offices and all the healthcare providers and things like that who, don't, who need it to help get it all synced up, that would be great with a drop-dead date so that that way you could motivate people to get it taken care of on the sooner side. And then after that, honestly, they should just start cutting reimbursements to them until they get signed up. They give them an incentive. Hey, if you, here, you take it by here. If you can't get it by then, start cutting reimbursements. And that would be to pharmacies, doctor's offices, healthcare systems, whatever it is, because that way there's an incentive for them to sign up. If And if you already provided the initial incentive, you've got the carrot and then you've got the stick. So you've got the reward. You have the incentive. If obviously, that's not going to motivate you. We'll use the stick. End. It kind of hits from both ends. Politics, so that's the way a lot of things get done. You have to give the carrot and the stick to make sure you kind of get things across the finish line. Another thing I would like to do, see them do is expand access to vaccinations. One call I have here is in my state, there's a certain insurance programs that are paid for by the state that make children under the age of 19 have to go to their pediatrician to get a simple flu shot. And it's kind of frustrating to me when I call a pediatrician to be like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm sending them over because they can't get their flu shot here. And the pediatrician goes, well, I don't have time for them because I'm backed up because I have all these kids sick in here with the flu. I don't want them coming in here. And so for me, I would like to see where they expand some of the scope of practice for all practitioners within reason, obviously. If we're talking some of your more specialty cases, somebody who's got obviously an immunological problem, maybe that even as a pharmacist, that might be a little bit out of my realm. I want to defer that to the specialist. And I'm, I'm not trying to take all vaccines from like pediatricians and everybody. Again, no conflict of interest here. I'm just looking out for people as a whole. Well, I guess I do have a conflict of interest. I'm a pharmacist, but I'm just trying to do the right thing. 
they should really make sure that, you know, they expand the scope of practice for everybody so that we're eliminating those hurdles. Um, Melissa kind of hinted at that earlier of we should kind of reward people for getting them and not make them jump through all the hurdles and make the hurdle for the people who aren't getting the vaccine. That's what we should do here. In, in my idea, we should really make sure that we increase the access to care for people instead of actually hindering it. Maybe 19 isn't the, the right number, which is where it currently is in my state with some of the um, state-funded Medicaid programs. We can give down to 13 or I think 13 or 12 in my state for the, uh, for the children. I really see it because I work on a high Medicaid population, so I always have to kind of punt them off to the pediatricians. But I don't see why we couldn't do down to like 7 or 8, 10. You know, that, that just makes sense, especially for a yearly vaccine. They're going to get to go in and, you know, get seen and tie up all the other mechanisms that cause delays in treatment for other people. Let them just come to the pharmacy and get it. Let it go to like the, the urgent care and get it. Let them go wherever it is and get it just because it's, it saves money and helps save lives. I also like to see allow people who don't have insurance to get their vaccines wherever they like and let the provider then send the bill to the county health department or to a state Medicaid program just to get it covered. And yes, I would even include the flu shot in that because as I mentioned earlier, how expensive the flu is. And there's still people don't have access, who don't have access to health care or don't have insurance because obviously we've had some of the ACA repealed back and some of the teeth taken out of that law. So there's more people who don't have insurance and insurance is expensive. The least we can do, I think, as a, as a country is help make sure that we do the bare minimum to keep them from being in a catastrophic situation or exposing other people to the catastrophic situation. I think that's the, the good and overall that we just should just do. And if somebody doesn't have insurance, can't pay their, can't pay their bills or has to, for whatever reason, misses work, that's, that's all money being moving around that the government's going to lose out on somewhere because most of those people might claim bank, bankruptcy and not pay the medical bills. Now it's got to be punted off to somebody else. So again, I actually look at it as an overall cost reduction strategy for healthcare is by letting, you know, say someone comes into my pharmacy and I can give them a shot. They don't have insurance, but I can make it zero out of pocket for them and just send the, the cost of the vaccine to the health department who just reimburses me. I'm not even asking to make money off it. I'm just asking to have the cost covered for us so that that way we can help provide a service and keep people healthy overall. Again, I'm not looking to make money off this. I'm just looking to do the right thing and keep people protected while also accommodating the costs that basically go with that. There'd be easy, obviously easy checks and balances with this if you had a government-run universal program to make sure that you're not just giving everyone a shot or comes in the door, too. So then we could go check, boom, boom, hey, we're all good, here you go, and then that, you know, that way we could just take care of it for everybody. The other thing is, and this is where I'm going to echo the sentiments of Mississippi and California, we need to make sure that we only allow for medical exemptions with a proper uniform form that must be redone every so many years by a signed and signed by a physician. This is key. I think this is key because when you look at California improve their vaccination rates sky high and achieve herd immunity for most diseases, if not oh, actually all of them, Mississippi is one of the best vaccination rates. Why? Because they do this. And like Melissa said, it reduces the hurdles. The hurdle or the burden needs to be put on the people who aren't getting the vaccine. So if we do everything, hey, you know, that's fine. You know, if you want, if you opted out for the medical reasons, that's fine. Most of those people are seeing the doctor that often to treat their medical issues. It's not even a burden to them. They should just be in there and be like, hey, you know I have X. Can you sign this for me? Let's file it. Get it sent off to the state. It's on file. Boom. I'm good. It wouldn't even be an inconvenience for them in my mind. The inconvenience would be for the people who, quote unquote, don't believe in it. Okay, now provide evidence. Once you ask them to provide evidence, the whole argument falls apart. And that's exactly what I want to see with this debate. I want to make sure that we're taking care of people. Now, I understand there's a civil liberties aspect to it, but as I was always told growing up, your civil liberties end when they violate mine. In this case, if you can get a disease past somebody else, your civil liberties end right there. That's why we need to make sure that you're protected from that. So with that, that's all I got this week. Again, a pretty dry episode, more of a call to action than anything else, but I hope you guys enjoyed some of the some of the eye-popping figures for some of this stuff. And if you have any questions, email me at politicalpharmacist at gmail.com or hit me up on Twitter at political underscore Rx. Facebook, I have a page for political pharmacist. And yes, I'm even on Instagram. Any questions, if you like the podcast, give me a good rating on uh, Apple would be great. Five stars would be awesome. Leave a review. It should be available on any podcast platform that you want to listen to this on. Thanks and hope you guys have a great and awesome week.